Our sermon this morning focuses on Pentecost and was prepared by Reverend Wes Bradenhoff. The sermon is based on two passages of Scripture. The first passage we will read is Acts 2, verse 14 through 41, followed by John 16, verses 4b through 11. Acts 2, starting at verse 14, it can be found on page 1253 of your pew Bible. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And now we move on to our second passage, uh, John chapter 16, starting at the second half of verse 4, which you can find on page 1244 in your pew Bibles. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And follows our text. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So far the reading of the word. Following our sermon this morning, we will respond with singing hymn 70. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the story is told of an emperor who prided himself on wearing the best and most fashionable clothes. One day, two tailors approached him with the offer of something very unique. They would fit the emperor with a suit of clothes that would only be visible to those who were highly intelligent and fit for their position. After the tailors finished the outfit, the emperor's ministers raved about it, even though they couldn't see it. And they were afraid of being exposed as incompetent, or, in the words of the two tailors, they didn't want to be seen as hopelessly stupid. Of course, the emperor did the same. And finally, the day came when the emperor paraded in front of his subjects with his new clothes. The crowds were too afraid of what others might think, so they oohed and awed over the emperor's new fashions. You probably know what happens next. A little boy cries out, but he isn't wearing anything at all. It's a light bulb moment for the crowds, and they soon join in. But the emperor is unfazed and carries on with his parade. In his proud mind, the crowds are too stupid to see his clothes. That little boy exposed the objective truth of the situation. Everyone else, including the emperor, was too blinded by their pride to admit what they were really seeing. In our text this morning, our Lord Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and do something like what that little boy did. He is going to expose the objective truth of the situation. So many have blinded themselves to what is really going on. In their pride, 
They have convinced themselves that things are one way when they're really another way. But the Holy Spirit will come, says Jesus, and he will be the one to tell the truth. The Spirit's work of telling the truth has more to it than first meets the eye. You can see this in the way that the ESV translates the key word here in verse 8 and in our New King James Version as well. He will convict the world. Convict has a legal connotation with it. This word is associated with courtroom proceedings. The word refers to being exposed to the objective truth. But it also contains the element of proving that someone is in the wrong, that someone is guilty and without excuse for what they have done. The Spirit is going to conclusively demonstrate that the world is guilty. So I preach to you God's word as we see that. After, at, at and after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit proves the world guilty. And we will see that he does this with regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Before we begin looking at verse 8, we need to note where we are in the gospel according to John. The second half of John's gospel is taken up with the events of the night before, during, and after Christ's death on the cross. This is one of the things that makes John's gospel unique. Matthew, Mark, and Luke dedicate several chapters to these events, but not anywhere near half of their gospels. In John 16, we're in the second half of that gospel. Jesus is with his disciples on the Thursday evening before Good Friday. They have eaten the Last Supper together. Judas Iscariot has departed to do his evil work of betraying Jesus. Jesus then began to teach them about what must soon take place. And one of the things he mentioned several times is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has a special name for the Holy Spirit here. He calls him the Helper. At least, helper is the translation we have in the New King James. The NIV has counselor, and you could also translate this word as comforter. Our Lord is clear that the Spirit, the helper, will come later and will be with his disciples forever, John 14, 16. The Spirit will comfort them and also teach them and help them to remember everything that happened while they were with Jesus, John 14, 26. The spirit of truth will also bear witness about Christ, John 15, 26. So when the Lord mentions the spirit in our text, he is not introducing something new. That evening, he's already mentioned the Holy Spirit several times. In our text, in verse 8, Jesus says that the spirit is coming. From the verses before, we know that this happens after the Lord goes away. That means that the Spirit comes after Christ's ascension into heaven. From where we stand today, we know that this takes place at Pentecost, 50 days after Easter. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church in a spectacular way. But from the perspective of Jesus and his disciples in the text, this still lays in the future. The Helper is coming. Now that might raise a question in some minds. Where was the Holy Spirit before Pentecost? Was he in heaven waiting for Pentecost so that he could finally come to earth? Is Pentecost sort of like 
Christmas for the Holy Spirit. Before Christmas, Jesus was not on earth. And before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was not on earth? No, loved ones. The Holy Spirit was present and active on the earth long before Pentecost. We can see that from some of the psalms we've been singing this morning. Psalm 104 mentions the activity of the Holy Spirit in creating and preserving life. He's been doing that all along, long before Pentecost. In the words of the Nicene Creed, he is and has always been the Lord and giver of life. We sang in Psalm 51 that David there pleads with God not to take away the Holy Spirit from him. The Holy Spirit lived in David's heart and not only gave him strength for his calling as king, but also worked faith in his heart. In fact, everyone who believed before Pentecost in Acts 2 could only believe because of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says that, the, says that faith is a gift of the Spirit. We can't imagine that before Pentecost, sinful people could believe on their own steam. And then suddenly after Pentecost, they needed the Holy Spirit to do that. No, faith has always been a gift of the Holy Spirit. So what changes at Pentecost? Pentecost is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. The emphasis falls on pouring out. The emphasis is on the fullness and abundance of the Spirit's presence and work in the church of Christ. He comes with power to equip the church to fulfill the mission given her by Christ to bring the gospel out to the nations. This mission begins with convicting. That mission begins with the Spirit convicting the world, exposing the world's guilt and deep need for Jesus Christ. When Jesus uses the word world here, we need to be clear on what he means. As elsewhere in John's gospel, world here refers to world as the collection of people sinning and rebelling against their creator. The world is not a neutral or undecided when it comes to serving God. Instead, the world is dead set against God. If we were to refer back to the story of the emperor, the world is committed wholeheartedly to the idea that its clothes are beautiful and only fools can't see it. Meanwhile, the reality is that the world is poor and naked. In fact, worse than naked. For the world has threadbare garments covered in the dirtiest filth imaginable. It's important to understand that the world is not the opposite of God's covenant people here. In chapter 15, when Christ speaks about the world, he describes them as those who persecuted him. The world is those who wanted him dead. Those who wanted him dead were men who had physically descended from Abraham. Those who persecuted Jesus were men who had been circumcised on the eighth day. They were members of the covenant. So you can't just read these words and say, oh, this is just about those outside the covenant. This isn't about us in the church. It's just about the people out there. You can't say that. The context won't let you say that. 
When Jesus speaks about the world here, he does so with the full recognition that sometimes the world is found among the covenant people of God. It shouldn't be that way, but sometimes it is. The Spirit will prove the world guilty on three scores. The first of these is found in verse 9. The Spirit will prove the world guilty concerning sin because they do not believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit is going to expose the sin of unbelief, the reality that everyone is called to repent and believe in Jesus. Everyone is called to turn their backs on sin and have a change of mind about it, to repent. And that's what repent means, to have a change of mind or heart. Instead of loving sin, the person who repents hates it. And instead of being opposed to God, the person who repents loves him. And instead of seeing themselves as not needing a savior, the person who repents acknowledges their deep need for Jesus. Everyone is called to repent. Everyone is called to entrust themselves to Jesus as the only one who can save from sin and its eternal consequences. The call to repent and believe is not optional. Listen carefully. You can refuse to believe, but you're not allowed to. There are consequences for refusing God's call. Refusing to repent and believe in Christ is a sin. This was true for God's covenant people, the Jews, in the days of Jesus. And it was true for the Jews and Gentiles after Jesus ascended into heaven, after Pentecost. And it remains true today. It's true for us, for you, for me. The Holy Spirit says that you must repent and sin from sin and rest and trust in Christ alone. If you refuse his call, you're with the world and the Holy Spirit proves you guilty. Now a question we should ask is, how does the Holy Spirit do this work described here? How does he convict the world of unbelief, proving the world guilty of unbelief? Our text doesn't answer this question but the rest of the Bible does. Elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that the Holy Spirit has a tool that he uses to accomplish his purposes, Ephesians 6, 17. The Holy Spirit's tool is the Word of God. Through the Bible and the preaching of the Bible, the Holy Spirit does what he wants to do. He proves the world guilty of unbelief through the Word of God, both as it's written and as it's proclaimed. We see this illustrated in the second chapter of Acts. Right after Pentecost, the Spirit does what Jesus says he will do here in John 16. He works through Peter's preaching to prove the world guilty of unbelief. The Spirit is speaking through Peter, and he says that those listening to that sermon have sinned by refusing to believe in Jesus and instead crucify him. Now I want you to notice something important in Acts 2. Who are the people to whom Peter is preaching? They are all God's covenant people. They were Jews. They were Jews from all over the world, but Jews nonetheless. But before repenting and believing, they were the world, 
in the terms of Jesus in John 16. And the Spirit proved them guilty of the sin of unbelief. He exposed their wickedness. The result of that is found in Acts 2, verse 37. They were cut to the heart. They said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent and believe and be baptized. Over 3,000 people did exactly that. The Spirit convicted them not only objectively, but also in their hearts, subjectively. The Holy Spirit still does this work today, and he does it in the exact same way. He comes to us, the people of God, with the word of God. And he says, you're a naked sinner, and you need to be clothed with Jesus Christ. He proves us guilty and in need of a remedy. We have to agree with the Holy Spirit's true assessment of us. We have to say, yes, I'm a poor, wicked sinner, and I know that I need Jesus Christ to deliver me from the wrath to come. I will turn from my sin, hate it, and believe in him, trusting that he is the Savior I need. According to Christ, the Holy Spirit will also prove the world guilty concerning righteousness. Here, we're at verse 10. And the Lord says that the Spirit will do this because he is going to the Father and will no longer be seen. What does it mean that Jesus is going to the Father? And how does that connect to righteousness? There are two ways in which Jesus goes to the Father, and they're both in view here. Jesus goes to the Father immediately after he dies on the cross. Remember what he said to the thief who repented and believed? Today you'll be with me in paradise, Luke 23:43. Paradise is the presence of the Father. Some people think that when Jesus died, he descended into hell. No. He descended into hell as he experienced our hell on the cross. When Jesus died, he right away went to be with the Father in paradise. But he also goes to the Father when he ascends into heaven. Before the eyes of his disciples, he gets taken up into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. This is also in view here in verse 10. There is a connection between his death on the cross and the ascension and the righteousness that's mentioned here. When Jesus died on the cross, he did so as the perfectly righteous son of God. He was perfectly obedient to the will of God for the salvation of sinners. The Holy Spirit proves this through Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter proclaims that Jesus was a man attested to the people by God. He was accredited by God. In other words, righteous before God. When he dies, he disappears and goes to the Father as one who, in himself, was completely righteous. The righteous one dies at the hands of unrighteous men. But this same righteous Son of God is also raised from the dead, testifying to his righteousness. God raised him from the dead to announce that his obedient sacrifice was accepted. It was exactly what was needed to redeem sinners. As Paul says in Romans 4, verse 25, 
he was raised for our justification. God raised him to show that his work accomplished exactly what it was supposed to. The body and soul of Jesus were gloriously reunited, and there was a mighty message in that. The Holy Spirit proved that, too, through Peter on the day of Pentecost. God exalted Jesus in his resurrection to prove that he was righteous. The world said he was a sinner, a blasphemer, who deserved to die on the cross. But God said, this is the righteous son of God in whom you need to believe if you are to be saved from your sins. The resurrection set the stage for his going to the Father in his ascension. Jesus was to be in the Father's presence, not only in spirit, but also in body. Jesus was to go to the Father with his whole glorified humanity. The ascension saw Jesus being taken into the Father's presence, and this too announced his righteousness. After all, a sinner cannot dwell in God's presence. He must either be perfect in himself, which Jesus was, or he must be made perfect, which he will be, which Elijah and Enoch were. So you see, the ascension too announced that Jesus was the righteous son of God. The Spirit takes the word to the world and says, World, you're wrong when you say that Jesus was just a mere man with faults and weaknesses like everyone else. The cross proves otherwise. The resurrection proves otherwise. The ascension proves otherwise. The Holy Spirit, through the word of God, convicts the world and says, This is the perfect and righteous Savior you need. You need a Savior who is sinless in himself. Jesus is that Savior. You need a Savior whose sacrifice for your sin was accepted by God, guaranteed. Jesus is that Savior. You need a Savior who is in God's presence right now, ready to speak up for you and defend you before the Holy God. Jesus is that Savior. The Spirit takes that word to us too, brothers and sisters. He takes that word to us first to first point out our faith again in the right direction. He wants us again to be reminded of these basic gospel truths. But he also wants us to be his instruments to bring this word to the world. The Spirit wants to work through us as we witness to the world about the righteousness of Christ. He is seen here no longer, but the message about him must be heard. It can only be heard when his followers speak of him. The church must witness to the righteousness of Christ, announcing that he is the only one who can save. He is also the one who has victory over this world. And that's what we see in verse 11, where the Spirit proves the world guilty concerning judgment. The judgment is over the ruler of this world. Again, notice the mention of this world. That's not really a reference to the earth as a physical place. After all, 
Elsewhere in the Bible, God is clearly described as the ruler of the king of the earth. Think of Psalm 24. The Lord is king of earth's domain, the world and all that dwell therein. Obviously, God is not the one being judged. He is the judge, not the judged. This world refers to the mass of humanity in rebellion against the divine judge. You could say this sinful world. It's the world of traitors, rebels, and malcontents. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan, the devil. He rules over all this rebellion and treason against God. Satan is the one judged here in verse 11. How has Satan been judged? You have to remember that verse 11 is looking at things from the perspective of Pentecost. This is looking at things from the perspective of Jesus' work on the cross having been completed and accepted by God. The cross was where our Savior crushed the head of the serpent. Satan thought he was dealing the death blow to Jesus by entering into Judas and having him betray Jesus to the religious leaders. Satan didn't understand that this was all part of God's plan to destroy his power and rule. When Jesus died on the cross, the guilt and power of sin were vanquished, and so was the one who cheerleads sinners. Satan wants sinners to continue rebelling against God, to live in sin, and to follow him to hell. At the cross, Jesus said, No, you're not going to have my sheep. I'm going to bear their penalty, take their sin on my shoulders, and there's nothing you can do about it. Satan, you're finished. You are conquered, and you'll soon be cast into the lake of fire where you belong. The Spirit convicts the world on this score, too. The world is Satan's willing ally. The Spirit comes with the word and says, World, you're in the wrong. You're guilty for siding with the one who has been judged. You're on the wrong side. World, if you follow your ruler, you're going to receive the same judgment as him. Unless you repent and believe, you're also destined for the lake of fire. You're guilty, and this is what you deserve. The Spirit announces that through the word of God, Sorry, the Spirit announces that through the word of God. The Spirit expressly says that all who follow the evil one will be judged with the evil one. Revelation 20, verse 10 and 15. The day of judgment is coming, and it will not go well with those who heard the Spirit's call to repentance and refused to obey. Loved ones, we see here an important warning for us too. This world of unbelief is destined for judgment along with its ruler. You don't want any part of that, do you? The ruler of this world is judged and the world along with him. That judgment is not favorable. This world of unbelief is condemned by God. That warns us against getting cozy with the world around us. We don't belong with the world of unbelief. Our citizenship 
is in heaven. When we're with unbelievers, there should always be a sense that we don't fit in, that we don't belong with them. It's not that we avoid them or that we abandon them or that we're afraid of them. No, we have a call to be the Spirit's instrument to bring conviction of sin and point them to the Savior. We want those who say, don't follow the ruler of this world because he's been judged. That's the truth. However, as we do this, it has to be clear that there is a distinction. Though we are all sinners, we are not the same type of sinners. Christians are redeemed sinners. Christians are repentant sinners. Christians are people who hate sin and fight against it. We recognize the evil and destructive nature of sin. See, we are different. We must be different. As the old saying goes, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to be with unbelievers, but not like unbelievers. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church at Pentecost, he came with this ministry of conviction. He began to work in a mighty way so that sinners would be exposed for what they really are, naked and in danger of condemnation. From the beginning, naked sinners have hid themselves from the true God. The Holy Spirit brings them out into the open and exposes them publicly. Not only that, but for some, he opens their eyes to their plight. He makes them see their need for Jesus and brings them to faith, to the, brings them to that Savior in faith. He did that in Acts 2, and elsewhere in Acts, he still, and he still does that today. As we heard, he does that through the word. Loved ones, hear the word. Always be open to the Spirit's conviction. As we witness with the word, let's also be the Spirit's instrument to work conviction for the salvation of sinners and for the glory of God. Amen.